0: Thank you, William. As you can all see, keep William on your prayer list. He's got a bad leg, tore the bicep in his leg last week. (laughs) I'm not sure what he tore, but it's bad, so we need to pray for him. He's, He's too valuable to have gimping around here. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You should be well aware that uh, that we're really going after the book of 2 Corinthians. We've talked about how that uh, where our church is at and the, just the many things that God is doing with many of you and how you're growing and the ministries that God has opened up for us. It was time, uh, God's time to uh go into the greatest book in the Bible that teaches us about ministry, and that would be the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, I told you that every chapter is a, is a key chapter and something that we need to learn about dealing with people because the ministry is people. Most churches, many pastors, they get the idea, and most Christians, they think that, uh, uh, that ministry is ministering to inanimate objects, and that's not true. The ministry is people, one-on-one with your life, with the life of somebody else. And uh, last week we saw basically an introduction to this chapter. And I think it's, I always like to kind of give a background to the chapter so that once we get into it, for those of you that are really paying attention, it kind of gives you a better base to work from. But I told you last week how the chapter one really defines for us what ministry is. And we went through chapter one, took us four or five weeks to get through it. We talked about how that the ministry is defined in chapter 1. And then last week in the introduction, I told you that where chapter 1 defines the ministry, chapter 2 defines the minister. And that great chapter has to do with the forgiving spirit that God's people should have and that you need to have if you're going to be involved in ministry. And We talked about some vital key principles. And each week, as you notice, we're adding to them and helping you get more of a little uh, understanding of some of these key principles. I call them the absolutes in ministry. And for where we're at and where we're going, and maybe after today uh, or throughout this process, some of you will really want to get to that point where you really give God you know, all of yourself and really do what He wants you to do and what He saved you for. These are invaluable. We talked about forgiving and forgetting, greatest characteristic that God has. That characteristic as we become more Christ-like should be uh, in our own lives we talked about the ability of not taking it personal when you deal in ministry you know what Uh, you get your emotions involved and not everybody's going to be happy with every decision you have to make or when you deal with things we're going to talk about some of that today so you have to realize the not to take it personal and of course the other principle we talked about is the way that you do that is you always remember who you're working for who you're you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the Lord Jesus, based on what He did for you. That brought us to the next principle that we talked about was understanding who you are in Christ. Once you're secure of who you are in Christ, then uh, you never learn it. You learn to take not to take things personal. And then we talked about uh, uh, responding versus reacting. How that uh, reacting is a, the knee jerk. You know, when somebody says something, you react back. Where responding is basically uh, taking the time to uh, process what is being said, what you're dealing with, and then laying it out uh, through the principles of the, of the Word of God. Now, we talked about a, a principled life, and that would be, you know, talking to yourself. How that when you speak to yourself, you talk to yourself, you know, uh, as Paul did here, he says, I've I reason within myself. You, you filter things out. You process it before you say something. And I told you that the older you get in the Lord and the more you learn these principles, the faster it comes and pretty soon it's, it's second nature to you. than when somebody says something almost in a split second, it's a lot like preaching. Preaching is an art where you stand up in front of people and you maybe have some notes prepared, but while you're speaking, you're always thinking. And you're not always thinking about, you're always thinking about what you just said, what you're saying now and what you want to say and how you want to tie it all together. And of course, that's, that's, an ability that you develop in time that uh, you can be uh, laying out what you got to lay out, but at the same time, I'm speaking right now, I'm thinking in the next instant what I want to say and then how I want to tie it into what I just said and then always keep the goal of what I want to tie it into the overall theme of what we're trying to accomplish. And that just comes in time. And that's why you can learn in any given situation to respond instantaneously in a split microsecond and then before you say what you shouldn't say, then you process it through there. There's something that you learn. You'll see that this whole chapter is built around that theme of our ability to forgive and to forget. So today, uh, let's begin to develop this great chapter, and maybe we can better understand uh, these great principles, and we'll talk about it. And Let's pick it up in chapter 2, and I'll pick it up in verse 1 here, and we'll read this first section here. He says, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? Uh, And I wrote this same unto you, uh, lest when I come I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, uh, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I might not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrawise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with uh, overmuch sorrow." Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. Now, Father, help us today to glean from this passage all that you have for us. Lord, these are good people here. And most of these people, Father, really want to do something with their life. I really believe that. And I pray, Father, that that you'll select out out of this church... Uh, men and women who will be willing to, to learn and to change about themselves, what they've got to change, to learn these great principles that uh, as this church goes on, we can continue to reach people and help them and help them in a biblical way. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, today we're not going to get through this whole passage. Uh, there's, there's just so much here. But as I said, we'll start to develop some principles in, as this chapter. And I suggest to you, and I'm going to talk about this next week, uh, but I suggest that uh, as we come down through here in this passage, uh, as the first chapter and the second chapter also, that some of these difficult passages that you look at and you're saying, like, uh, like verse 2 where he says, For if I make you sorry, who is he that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? What is that talking about, you know? Well, I'm going to explain these to you today uh, as we go through, as we do every book of the Bible, and it's very important that you get this in your wide margin Bible, that you have a kind of a running commentary uh, in, in what we're doing here. You know, the Bible teaches that the job of the church is really laid out in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, and it's a threefold job, very simple in its, in its format. The Bible says that he gave to the church pastors and teachers. Then he says, these are the three reasons, and I know you know this, this is the three reasons that he did it. First of all was the perfecting of the saints. The second was the work of the ministry. The third one was the edifying of the body of Christ. And perfecting the saints deals with the aspect that when you come in here, we all got baggage, we all got things we got to work through. And so the process is a perfecting you, getting you ready for the work of the ministry because that's why God saved you. Then once you get those two things accomplished in your life, then the job from that point on is to continue to edify. Edify is to, to give you what you need, to help you see who you are. And, uh, you know, and once you accomplish that, and you accomplish that by preaching and teaching, that's the pastor's job. And you, pass, you accomplish that through a, a local New Testament church. Then the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, once the Word of God is applied to your life, then... Here's what the Word of God does back for you. And this, again, is a familiar passage, but I want to put it in the context of what we're going to talk about today. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we see the effect of the Word of God once the church does its job. Now, my job is clearly just threefold, and there's a lot of different things within that. We could talk about it for days. But my job basically as a pastor is just threefold. One, to perfect you. I perfect you for the work of the ministry then my job is to edify you. Once that is accomplished in your life and you get a handle on the Word of God, then the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Then it says that once the Word of God is applied to your life, it's profitable for four things. The first thing it's profitable for is doctrine. Now, we know what that means. We've talked about it many times. This is a very familiar passage if you've stayed around here very long. Doctrine is the teaching of what's right in the Bible. You're going to find people who are messed up on different things in the Bible. They're messed up on doctrine. The Bible teaches you what is right. Then you have the second thing is reproof. The third thing is correction. And the uh, fourth thing is instruction in righteousness. I like to make little outlines out of things that help me not only remember it, but always give me a little... If you're doing a devotion sometime in volleyball or something or softball and you want a little deal, these are the ones, I mean... uh, uh, you know, I always looked at it this way: all scriptures give me inspiration, God's propitio for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction, and in righteousness. I always say that the Bible, first of all, shows you what's right. Then the Bible shows you reproof, what's wrong. Then it shows you correction. That's how to fix what's wrong. Then instructions and in righteousness. That's how to keep it fixed after you get it fixed. You see, that's that's what it does for you. Just that simple. Then he says that the man of God may be perfect. Truly furnished unto all good work. Now that perfect there doesn't mean sinless perfection. That perfect there goes back to what he's talking about, where he's talking about perfect for the work of God, the work of the ministry. That's what you're perfected for. Now today, the two things we're going to look at is number two and number three. We're going to look at correction and reproof, or I should say, reproof and correction. And that's what we want to look at today, as through Paul's example of this church. Now in our lives and I'm sure you know this is true, this is not new, in our lives there are times that we need to be reproved and we need to be corrected. Just that simple. It's part of the learning process for the work of God. You and I go through our times in life when we do things that are wrong, we do things that aren't right, or we get into situations that we shouldn't. And uh, the the reproof and the correction is just as much a process in the Bible as the admonishing and the teaching and the doctrine. And... uh, Paul, we know, is our model. And what he's doing in this church is exactly uh, what he's supposed to be doing. He's fulfilling uh, through these four aspects the teaching and the preaching of the Bible to keep this church right online. He says in verse t- uh, 2, 3, and 4 here, he says, For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad but the same which made me sorry? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that in me that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you in many tears, not that you should be grieved, that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. All right, verse 2, as I said, kind of, it, kind of you look at it and you think, what are you saying? For if I make you sorry, who is then that maketh me glad, but the same which make uh, made sorry by me? Let me explain that. What he's saying is this. If I made you sad by the things that I said to you, and he said some very hard things. If I, holding you accountable, if I, correcting you or proving you, made you sad, then I'm glad. That's what he's saying. But then he's saying, I'm not glad because I enjoy making you sad but I'm glad because my telling you the truth and you feeling sorry will lead to you getting right with God in repentance and then start doing what God wants you to do, and for that, I'm glad. See, that's what he's saying. It's just that simple. We see the in verse 1, we saw the heaviness of Paul's heart when he started to open up this chapter. We saw it last week, and this was due to his burden and grief uh, for them uh, to do the right thing as a church. And uh, it's an incredible uh, passage here and. And it says, and and we see here uh, coming out of this another great aspect of the ministry. And this is very key. Uh, Nikki Brown asked a question last Thursday night on the uh, Judgment Seat of Christ, a connection with, uh, you know, uh, rewards and and what God looks at. And we had a great time with that. And, uh, you know, this dovetails right into this. Because what we see now coming out of this chapter, this this next great principle uh, through Paul's life and dealing with his church is the, is the concept of our motive behind our ministry. You see, Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will shortly, it says that the ministry has to be open and honest, no hidden agendas. Uh, the, the ministry or the minister has to be open and honest with everything that they do. You have to be able to under, have confidence in what's going on and there should be no hidden agendas. And uh, it, everything should be commended, the Bible says, to a man's conscience. That means that you feel good about it because it's open and honest. You see everything. You can ask any questions without getting your hand slapped. And, uh, and that's the key because the right motive in ministry or dealing with people will absolutely be one of the key things that you do. You see, your motive uh, your motive, and your ability, uh, your motive in, in doing what's right in ministry and when your motive is right in ministry, then forgiveness and forgetting will never be an issue. It'll never be an issue. It's only an issue when your motive is not what it's supposed to be. When you and I in ministry, when our motive is the right motive and we're doing what we're doing because we love people, and that doesn't mean you don't correct people. It doesn't, you know, we, we live in a world today where if you correct your children, you, everybody thinks you don't love them. And of course, that's simply not true. And you'll find that Paul said some very heavy things to these people, but because he loved them. And when you understand that, you see his motive behind the concept of ministry. And when your motive is right, your forgiving and forgetting situations will never come into the picture. Biblical correction will always have as its motive the love for the person and what you're dealing with because you understand you know, what God has for them and you want the person to do right. You know, over the years in ministry, and I'm sure some of you can equate to this that have been dealing with people for a long time too, but dealing with Christians is just like dealing with your children. I mean, it really is. If you're good with your children, you'll be good in dealing with people. It's just that simple. Good parents will always correct their children. They will. And uh, you correct them and reprove them because you love them, because you want them to grow up right and keep them safe. You know, I talked about it Thursday night. I said, if you and I've seen this happen, we go someplace together, you know, or you come to church and your kids are excited about it, or you're going someplace to so amusement park or whatever, and they're really excited about it. So you pull in there and you get there, you know, and you start to get the one of the couple other kids out of the car, and suddenly the ones you got out are excited. They see their friend across the way, they run right out on that street right across the busy intersection, right across the moving parking lot, right across the whole thing, and, I mean, just could be easily hit with a car. And you gasp. You, you panic for a moment. You certainly don't respond. You react and probably need to in that case. You throw your other kids in the car lock them securely. You know, <laughs> leave the windows down a little bit so they can breathe. And you run over and you grab this child and you bring them over and you absolutely rebuke them. And I, you get in their world and you get in their face. And you're not doing it because you're mad at them. You're doing it, not doing it because you're angry at them. You're doing at it because you know that what they did was a stupid thing, and they could have been severely hurt if not killed. And so you're rebuking him, you're reproving him, you're correcting him. But your motive behind it is that you love them and you want to keep them safe. You see. Uh, but just like your kids. And my kids were the same way growing up. Just like our kids, 95% of, of Christians don't respond well or react well to, to criticism or correction or reproof. They just don't. You know, all my life I've seen parents that they, their kids, you know, the parents really don't do what they're supposed to do with their kids when they're growing up, when they're little. And, uh, and believe it or not, you can get away with it for 9, 10, 12 years, maybe 11 years. But one, of the, one day, then he or her, the kid, uh, hits that point where uh, they're going to, where when they were three or four and you told them what to do and they didn't like it, they just stuck their tongue at you when you turned your back. You see, you never really got into it. Because you were big, you were strong, and they knew that you could overpower them. But when a kid turns 12 or 13 or 14 years old, I mean, now he challenges or she challenges your authority. And they're going to go out and they're going to start to do some things. And now you've got to correct them. And you start to, uh, I don't know how many parents have come in and talked to me and they said, I'm not sure what happened to my kid. I don't know, you know. All of a sudden, now they're 12, 13, 14 years old and they're sassing me back. They're doing all these things. They're going and hanging out with the wrong crowd. I don't know what happened to my kid. And, you know, and I am so sick and tired of going through the same boring segment of why. So I just tell them, in fact, I bought seven or eight copies of it, and I just give them out a copy of the great classic horror thriller Frankenstein from 1932. (laughs) starred Boris Karloff, Basil Rathbone. Oh, what a fake guy he is. And you know the story of Frankenstein. The original one, you know, the original. Not these watered-down, mamsy-pamsy ones that he looks like, you know, somebody that's your next-door neighbor. I'm talking about this guy, the real original Frankenstein. And I say, watch this, and then come back. And I'll say, did you see at the end of the movie how Frankenstein ran amok through the village, terrorizing, killing, maiming, hurting everybody? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What's that got to do with my kid? Well, why did he do that? Why did Frankenstein, at the end of the movie, run through the city, killing people, terrorizing people, people wouldn't come out at night, scared to death. Why did he do that? I'll tell you why he did that. Because the guy created a monster. Are you getting my drift? When you create a monster, that's what monsters do. They terrorize people. They don't follow any rules. Now, I'm not suggesting that you do what they did in the 1932 version and burn him in a windmill someplace, but it might help. But my point is this. When you deal with your people, you're dealing with just like with your kids. Your kids don't like to be rebuked. Your kids don't like to be told and corrected. And most of God's people don't like it either. Yet the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, ye have forgotten in verse 5, it says, ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. You see, to God were his children. And he says, verse 5, my son." Here comes, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Then it says in verse 11, now no chastening for the present seemed to be joyous, but grievous. That's right, you see. God knows that we don't like to be rebuked and corrected any more than children do. But he says afterward, after the reproof, after the chastening, after what you have to go through, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness? You know what that means? It means then you do right. And that's the whole goal. God's love in chastising you, rebuking you and me, is based on his love for us. He says, <coughs> what, child, what, what father is it that doesn't correct his child and what parent don't correct their children? <coughs> And you don't do it because your motive is you're angry, or it shouldn't be, or you hate them. The motive is, I love you. And because I love you, I know there's something out there that will hurt you that you don't see for whatever reason. And that's the way it is. You know, in my life right now, where I'm at, I'm having the greatest time of my life. If somebody would have told me 25 years ago that I was going to enjoy the ministry and what I do, the way that I do, I, I, I wouldn't have understood it. But I tell you what, I love my relationship with all of you. And everybody look to the left. The person sitting to the left of you, right We got Now look to the right. Okay. There's only two people in this church that I don't like. You've just looked at them. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what? Personally, I don't think there's a loser we in this church. I mean, I'm not saying that you're not going to wind up losing, but I don't think there's anybody in this in our church that doesn't have the ability to be used of God and to do what God wants them to do. And I you know, I love my relationship with all of you. I mean, God doesn't bring problem people to our church he just doesn't now I didn't say he didn't bring people with problems but he doesn't bring problem people he brings people to the church here in my own personal opinion he brings people here with problems because he's given you an opportunity to get in the book and solve those problems and that's what a church is all about you know some of you by the Bible says a brother is born for adversity over there in the book of Proverbs chapter 17. And many of you, you know, older guys are like the brothers that I never had in my life. And certainly, we've been through some adversity together. And, you know, I know that uh, many of you call me dad. Many of you call me pops. You call me grandpa and you're dead. But, but, you know, and I like that. I, I understand that. I really do. Many of you tell me I'm your father in the Lord, you know, my, your spiritual dad, your spiritual father. Hey, I understand that. And I never want you to think that that's not special to me and that I, in many, many cases, I feel the same way. But I also understand that a lot of that can just be, excuse my uh, coin a English here, blowing smoke up my rear end. <laughs> because a lot of people will always want to tell you what they think you want to hear. And I, and I, you know, and I don't make any judgments on it one way or the other. I enjoy it. I do, I do, because I love my people. And somebody says, you know what? Uh, you're my spiritual dad. You're my spiritual father. You're pops. You're with us. You're dad." I, I appreciate all of that. But you know what? The bottom line is the real proof of that is that I am your spiritual father, and you love me, and I'm your dad in the Lord. Right up to the point where I got to correct you. See? See how it works. I know how it works. I'm your spiritual father in the Lord right after I have to rebuke you or correct you and then it's just like your kids. You get an attitude about it. You see, I keep trying to tell you this and I know it's hard for you to divide it all out but it is not my job as a pastor to tell you what to do. That's not my job. You are. You can do whatever you want to do. Uh, if you're, whether you're saved or you're lost, that's not my job to tell you what to do. Many pastors think it's their job to tell you what you do with your life. It is not my business. It's not any of my. Somebody comes up and says, "You know, so and so, see and so and so." I don't care. As long as she's not somebody else's husband or she, or wife or whatever how the thing works, I don't care what they do. Some of you just get so, you know, so-and-so seeing so-and-so. Oh, so-and-so smiled at so-and-so when they came in the door. I think they're going to get married. (laughs) I don't get into those things. My job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to tell you what God wants you to do with your life. That's my job. But all churches have to, and all I do is preach a Bible standard that forms a Bible platform. By which you say, Yeah, I want to adhere to that, or No, I don't. But people think, you know, that I have favorites in the ministry. I'm, I don't really have favorites in the ministry. I just get closer to people who are in the foxhole with me when the bullets are zinging by my ears than somebody that's in the rear with the gear, if you can identify with that. I have the vernacular that we used to say in the military, but I'll just spare you that for right now. Make it in later on, but right now we'll just leave it out. You know, the concept is that you got to hold a standard. you got to have a Bible platform. The church has to be, in the world that we live in, the church today has to be a stable platform that never changes. My God, people, everything in the world changes around us. I mean, everything. You, 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 can't, you can't bet on the news that you see at 9 o'clock in the morning. It'll change by the time you see it at 10 o'clock at night. Everything in this world is in flux. Everything in this world, there's nothing stable. There's nothing absolute. You can't bet on anything. And what people need today is one place, just one, one place where they can go where it's always going to be the same. One place they can go that truth is always going to be the main meal served and you get the bottom line every time, every way, no matter what it is. People need that in their life. That's all the church really does. That's what a pastor's job should be. I don't get involved in social issues. I don't care about gay rights. I don't care about this big thing about, you know, the funding abortion and all that. I don't get into that stuff. If you preach the truth and you preach the Bible, the Bible truth and the impact of a nation bathed in that book will take care of every moral problem we got. Problem is not the liberals. The gays or this situation over here or the people who like abortion, the problem is preachers aren't getting in the pulpit and taking the truth and blasting people with it, you see? Now, I say that because all my life I've heard this. People don't like to be corrected. People don't like to be rebuked. They like to get into situations, circumstances, to do things and then just kind of pretend that I'm I'm just fine. And of course, that doesn't work. How can two walk together, the Bible says, except they be agreed? No man can serve two masters. You either love the one or hate the other. Years ago, I had, a, I had a guy that came in to see me, and this is in his church a number of years ago, about eight years ago. And uh, he said, well, you know what? He said, I just don't feel, I just don't feel like the, the church is... The church is where it used to be. And, and I don't think the church is, is, is uh, that uh, is, anybody in the church likes me. It's what he's trying to get across. And I let him go on for a little bit. And, I, and then I finally said to him, I said, you know what? I said, I think the, don't think the problem the church. We're still preaching the same thing now. We preached the day you came in the door. People are still getting saved. You know, you won four or five people to Christ the first couple of years you were here. Did You win any last year? You never missed a Bible study for the first two years you are here. Last year, you missed just about all of them. You know what I think? I don't think the church has changed. I think you've changed. You see, the church has the same passion now that it had when you came. And you had that passion for a couple of years. You know what you did? You gave that passion to something else or somebody else. And so now when you do that, your passion changes. You don't love the things that you once loved. You start to think the church changed. I can guarantee you one thing on all the money you got. This church will never change the stand on what it teaches and what it preaches. Amen. Wrong is wrong, right is right, black is black, white is white. The devil don't get you. I don't forget how that thing goes. Anyway, it was a little song. <clears throat> but that's just the way it is. People don't like to be rebuked. They just don't. And you, you know, you're fine with the pastor. You're fine with me. Right up to the fact that I have to deal with you on something. And uh, you know, it's just it's just the way that it is. And your kids are like that. Listen, kid, let me tell you something. When I was your age and God put a man in my life and I recognized his motive, what it was, that he loved me. And when he corrected me, and brother, many times he corrected me publicly when I was preaching. I knew it because he wanted me to do what's right and be the best. I realized what I had. You know what? I saw his motive. And years later, years later, he said to me one time, he says, you know what? I saw something in you that I didn't see anybody else, and that's why I was harder on you. And I appreciate it. He didn't have to tell me that. I already knew that. You know what the difference is between me and, and some of you right now? I'll tell you what. When he told me something, whether I liked it or not, it's what I did. Because I knew he was right. I knew he knew more about it than I did. I knew he knew more about life and the ministry and people. And I knew God had put him in my life. And I never copped an attitude with him because I knew his motive. And I knew he was the man that God put in my life. Just that to it. Motive is everything. Motive in ministry. Why we do behind what we do. And that's what I'm saying. This great chapter is dealing with forgiving and forgetting. And when your motive is right in ministry... Forgiving people is never an issue. Never is. Never is. In reality, it's the key to everything in our relationship with Christ. Nikki asked a question the other night in Bible study. And I talked about the judgment seat of Christ. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, it's not about what you did or what you didn't do. It's not about how much you did. It's about the motive of why you did what you did. That's what God looks at. He says of what sort it is in 1 Corinthians three, thirteen, He's going to sort out what we do according to the motive that was behind it, why you did it. See, Paul didn't say uh, these hard things he said to hurt them, but to help them. He said it in chapter 1, verse 24. I want to be a helper of your joy. But you know it's true with your kids. And when you get into ministry and you start dealing with people, you got to realize that reproof and correction go right along with it. Right along with it. We had a girl in our church here. She's still here. And I'm not going to embarrass her because she's turned out to be one of the crown jewels of this church. And I appreciate her very much. But when she came into this church several years ago, I got to say, she was probably one of the most dysfunctional people I've ever met in my life. And this gal was prone to make every bad decision that there was to make. I think she even invented a few. And there's many times that me and the people were looking at her and we just shook our heads. And this girl had so many issues she had to work through, so many misconceived concepts about life, relationships, and a whole nine yards. It was unbelievable. And I remember talking to the people that were working with her, and I won't even say anything about anybody because I won't even give any shadow of who it was. <laughs> but I remember talking to people working with her, and I said, you know what? We, we would just say, do you believe that? And I said, yeah, I believe that. I've seen it all my life. And then we'd both come back and say the same thing. But you know what? There's something about her because no matter how brutal you are with her, no matter how you just get in her face and say that was the stupidest thing you ever saw, you ever did in your life. Why would you do that? No matter how brutal you got, and you had to get right down where she could grasp it. But no matter what you said, she did what was right with it. And today, one of the finest people in our church I don't know what to tell you. There's something about it. God puts people in your world just like he puts your parents. And some of you, well, we don't have any teenagers here. Yeah, we do. Preach the teenage section. Some of you teenagers don't understand it today. God put parents in your life to correct you and reprove you and to guide you because they love you. And that's what the church does. That's what Paul's dealing with his church here. Paul was one of the hardest preachers I ever met anywhere and ever read about in the Bible. But his motive was the same as God's motive when he's hard with us. A love for God's people to do what's right. And that was the bottom line in everything he did. I gave you last week a great principle. Boy, if you don't have this on a three-by-five card, you're, you're in trouble. Job thirty-four twenty-three. What a great verse. For he will not lay upon man more than right. That's all God wants. All God wants is you and me to do what's right. And then he says that he should enter into judgment with God. If you're not right, God wants you to make it right. Take care of it now, or God will take care of it tonight. Just that simple. Now, in the book of Proverbs, and I love Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, you're going to find the greatest, wisest man who ever lived in this book on, on, on wisdom. And I love Proverbs. If I had one book in my life, and I've told you this, that I can commit the total Greek call in every situation to be the Proverbs. I think out of Proverbs comes the issues of life. I think in every example, every model, everything in the Bible, you're going to find the rest of the books. I think it comes back to Proverbs. I think it is the central key concept of the mind of Christ. But what he does in Proverbs for you and for me is defines for us a wise man and a foolish man. Now, we've talked about a part of this that we're to to, uh, examine ourselves, the four things, you know, examine ourselves, see. Go down down through that line. Examine yourself, you know, see who, uh, you know, be honest with yourself, all those four things I gave you. And I tell you, it's so simple here that sitting here this morning, sitting here this morning, you can put yourself in one category or the other. Now, there are some things in the Bible that are nebulous, and nebulous means Kind of smoky that you can't see everything, but boy, this isn't one of them. When it comes to the book of Proverbs, he cuts right through the smoke. And in Proverbs, he defines for us what a wise man is and what a foolish man is. And I want you to see this today of how it fits into you know this concept of accepting uh, the, what God corrects us and rebukes us. Everybody, everybody enjoys, or they probably probably enjoy it for the wrong reason, American Idol. I like American. I never watch it, but I, I watch it every once in a while, for one reason: to watch some horrendously horrible person get up there and sing. A couple of weeks ago, they were in Galveston, Texas, and they had two cowboys come in and sing. It was the absolute most ridiculous. I've heard some things on it that I, I have laughed for three weeks after I've heard some of them. <laughs> I mean, I go downstairs, and I can't quit laughing. It's absolutely the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard in your life. Nothing is on key. Nothing is in tune. They don't have a clue of what anything about music has to do with. I mean, if you closed your eyes, you'd think it was a wounded coyote out there in the a <laughs> desert someplace. I've heard some of those gals come up there, and I'll tell you what. Uh, you know what? I'm honest with you. The one gal, she never make it as a she never make it as an American Idol, but she could rent herself out to a small town for an air raid siren. I guarantee you. I promise you, she could. But anyway, the thing that I like about it is just not how terrible they are, but how good they think they are when they're not. That's what I can. I mean, come on. Have you not listened to yourself? I mean, I hope you live in a house that doesn't have much glass. You're going to break every window in that place, man. And they get up there, and they actually think they're good. They actually think they're great. And when you, when you tell them they're not, oh. Have you ever seen them stomp out? Did you ever see them look, that look like a deer in the headlights, like, What? I'm not good. No, you're not good. Now, I don't know who these people are, but you have a three or four panel people who are supposed to be experts in music. I don't like it much anymore since Simon's gone because Simon was brutal. And I relate to Simon because Simon, was, he didn't hold anything back and he was brutal. I mean, he did. I remember what happened, I laughed for a week. He said to this one gal, He says, Did you ever just, you had to think about taking singing lessons? And the girl says, Oh, I have. And he says, Where at? She says, Oh, it was a correspondence course. And he says, Boy, they sure lost a lot of your mail, didn't they? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I say, I'll have to say this God's people are the same way they get out of fellowship with God and just like I sit there and listen to American Idol, you listen to it and we look at each other and say, man, what was that? They think it's great. And nobody's going to tell them how terrible they really are. They can listen to their own tape. And they'll say, what's wrong with that? What? What's wrong with that? The dog's howling, the canary died, and the fish are belly up in the pool. Do you want to know what's wrong with that? God's people are the same way. They get out of fellowship with God and they just like they they, they they don't see that everybody else sees it. When you start to get out of fellowship with God and you start to drift away from the book and the principles and start to get into areas where it, you shouldn't be, let me tell you something. You can't hide that any more than Miss Screecher can scream and, and sing and say, wasn't that really good? I've seen them sit there and those poor judges put their hands in their head. I watched one of them put his hands over his ears. They never got it. If I was singing up there and somebody buried their hands and somebody put their ears over there started laughing, I'd just stop and go home. <laughs> no, no, not them. They're just go on like I'm at the opera house, you know, and these people, they're, they're, he's put his head down because he's never heard anybody like this. That's true. You know, he, she, I mean, she's holding her ears because you know, It's ridiculous. God's people are the same way. Well, the book of Proverbs is one of those recordings of our singing. You want to find out what you really like? Get into Proverbs. Because Proverbs define, I'm going to define for you a wise man versus a foolish man. You put yourself and you score yourself. Now, the Bible says a wise man. I'm going to give you the references and you need to, Get these down if you don't have them in. Bible says the first thing, you know, I'm going to keep asking yourself, do you know, ask yourself first, am I like this? And then ask yourself, do I know anybody like this? Bible says a wise man wins souls. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. Bible says a wise man inherits glory. Chapter 3, verse 35. Oh, here it comes. Chapter 10, verse 8 says a wise man receives commandments 1215 says a wise man hearkens to counsel 2911 says a wise man guards his tongue 1815 says a wise man seeks knowledge Fourteen sixteen says a wise man fears and departs from evil. Chapter one verse five says a wise man will hear. Here it is: what is said and take it and increase in learning. And then fifteen seven, wise man, after he gets all of that, after he grabs all of what we just talked about, chapter fifteen verse. Seven says that a wise man then disperses knowledge. He takes what he's got, gives it out to somebody else, much like what you're going to do this afternoon or do throughout the week. Now, you know anybody like that? I mean, you can give yourself, you know, maybe one off, but, I mean, when it comes down here, the key ones that you want to put in red or receive commandments, hearken to counsel, seeks knowledge, and when he gets knowledge, he increases it into learning. That's the key. That's the key. Now, a fool, a fool. Now, a fool, chapter 1, verse 7, despises wisdom. A fool, in fourteen nine, mocks sin. A fool, in chapter 20, verse 3, meddles in other people's business. A fool, chapter 10, verse 18, Slanders other people. A fool, 2611, repeats his own sin and the verse there is a dog returning to its own vomit. If you had a dog, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My dog throws up. Don't get in a panic. Leave it go for 15 minutes. It'll be gone when you come back. I'm going to try that one time myself to see if it works, but I don't think it will. Anyway, (laughs) 1724, a fool's eyes are to the ends of the earth, never satisfied, never content. 1710, a fool rejects, here it comes, the punishment of correction. See that thing? And then the last one, 2826, a fool trusts, in their own heart. Now, see how easy that makes it? You can put yourself in one or two categories. Just don't be like the American Idol person. And obviously, the tendency, the first thing to do is you say, oh, yes, I know somebody like that. And the person sitting across the thing saying, yeah, I know somebody like that too. It's you. You put yourself in here. This is a good self exam Examine yourself. Know yourself. Prove yourself. Here it is, right here. Take heed to yourself. Here it is, right here. I mean, this is cut and dry. It doesn't leave anything to the imagination. Now, you know, when it comes to confrontation and Paul confronts this church, and in ministry, you got to understand that dealing with people in their problems and confronting them is something that has to happen. But I'll be honest with you. I, I personally don't like confrontation. and I never have, really. I never have. I'm not a person, I'm not a person who enjoys confrontation. I don't think most people are. But I also understand that it comes with a job and it's nothing personal. If you're going to do what the Bible says and the Bible's a standard and I understand that there's variations in things that we allow but the bottom line is there are some things that you just have to hold a line on. God's program of accountability and responsibility is a New Testament Bible believing, Bible preaching, Bible teaching, local church. I said it earlier, the church has to be a stable platform for truth. And I don't, I think the hallmark of many big churches, I said many, I don't necessarily say all, but I think the hallmark of many big churches is that people are drawn to them because they can hide. There's no accountability. You can come when you want, do what you want, go when you want, don't come when you want, nobody ever cares. But you see, there has to be accountability and the church has to be a stable platform for truth that God's people have have a base to build on something that you know never changes. And that if if you change it's you, but the church cannot change. It's still wrong to do this like it was last week. The fact that now you think it's okay to do this, <laughs> that's you moving out, not the church. Now look at now look at verses 3 and 4 and 5 again. Here's another great Bible principle in ministry. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is in the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you that with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that you might know the love by which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I might not overcharge you all. Now here's this motive. What a great motive. You see the motive is he says I'm not I'm not grieving you because I'm not I'm not grieving you or saying these things to you to hurt you. I'm saying these things to you because it's truth and you need to hear them because you need to get where you need to be with God. And what he's saying down through here now brings up another great principle. When you start to deal with people when you start to get involved in people's lives and many of you know this principle already, but I'll define it a little clearer for you, even today. You have to come to the point where you have to find a balance in dealing with people. You know, I talk about not taking things personal, but personal things are your emotions, and you cannot keep your emotions out of dealing with people. I mean, if you love people, that's an emotion. I mean, you've got to find a balance between loving them and giving them a part of you, but then having a line drawn in the sand, so to speak, that a balance that you don't change. You see, it's the balance of getting your emotions involved to a point but not getting to the past the point where you get used by the people because you really want to help them, but they really don't want to do what's right. And I find that is the biggest single flaw in young people, Christians, who are trying to get into the avenue of working with people. And it comes in time. It really does. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm glad you got it. I'd much rather have that's a problem to solve than it is trying to get you emotionally involved at all. But Paul has a burden for this church, a genuine burden. And he cares about them. And all his correction and the hard things that he says to them I came from the aspect that I simply want you to do what's right with God because I love you. And I know as the man who started this church, he's saying to them that you're better than this. You have more to offer and you're sidetracked. Look at verse 4. Here's his heart with them. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. There's a motive. That's as pure a motive as you can ever have. But you know what? As a pastor in a ministry for over 40 years, I understand exactly what he's saying. I know exactly what Paul's alluding to. Let me tell you something. Nothing kicks you in the gut harder than having a person in your ministry that you see that has great potential, that you see could be used of God. I've seen people that had great personalities. They were people- a, a people person they they had they had a they get a great sense of everything about them it's absolutely it, it just kicks you in the gut that sick feeling that somebody who has great potential but winds up because they're a fool a Proverbs chapter one throwing it all away that's what grieves you that's what grieved paul it didn't make him mad, but it grieved him at his heart because he understood what I understand. And what, in time, I hope you understand that the job of this church is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And in dealing with people, there has to be correction and reproof. It just comes having the good times without being able to deal with the bad times. It's like I said with your kids. If you get along with your kids fine and you just play and laugh and talk and you just say, oh, I have a wonderful relationship with my kid. And then when you try to rebuke them, you see, you really don't. It isn't about what we have together isn't about when everything is going good. What we have together is when the world's coming down around us and we have to deal with things. That's where the real relationship and the maturity of Christianity plays itself out. It's just that Paul, says, uh, and, I've, and Paul says that've this, and, and I've learned to say this, and you need to learn this also. He says, "I want you to do right, and I want you to begin to do right." And I'm so burdened for you and weep for you and I love you so much. But, look at verse 5. But if any have caused grief, he has not grieved me but in part, that am I not overcharge you all. Now here's the balance that he says. Here's what he's saying. You grieve me but only in part. You see, Paul had a, part, a line that he wasn't going to cross. Paul loved these people. He loved them. He wanted to do what's right. He'd do everything in the world for them, but he knew that there was a line he could not cross. And now here's what he's saying, and it's our next great principle in ministry that goes hand in hand with forgiving and forgetting. He says, I want you to do right, but he says, I'm not going to overcharge you. Now, what's that mean? Well, a charge in the Bible, like you find Paul giving to Timothy, is the commandment to do what's right. He says to Timothy, I charge you, I give you this charge. At our prayer group, we're talking about the 12 charges that God gave Timothy as a young pastor. A charge is something that, that he commits unto him that God has given Paul that he's charging him with. When you charge something on your credit card, you put it on your account. When you charge somebody with something in the Bible, you're putting it on their account. You better do something with it. In other words, you better be accountable. You know why they call it your account when you put a, your balance every month? What's your account? What's my bank account? What's my charging account? Well, here's, my, here's my statement from, from my credit card, and it's my account. You know why it's called an account? Because at the end of the month, you have to be accountable for it. And so when we charge you with something, we put it on your account. You need to be accountable for it. That's what he's saying. He said, I won't overcharge you. I won't overcharge you. I'm not going to give you something that you're not ready for. But what he's saying here is this, and here's this great principle. I want you to do right, and I weep and pray and grieve for you to do what's right, but I will not let myself want you to do right more than you do. Because the moment you want somebody you're working with to do right more than they want to do right, you're going to become vulnerable, you're going to become used, you're going you're to sidestep the biblical principles, you're going to cut them some slack, and you're going to get taken advantage of. It's the tender trap in dealing with people, keeping your emotions principled by the Word of God. I've had people, and I know you dig with people, too, because you ask me. You tell me, well, you know, I'm, I'm working with so-and-so, and we're discipling. And uh, you know what? He uh, comes to discipleship, but I can't get him to come to church. What do I deal with that? It's simple. Here's what you do. Hey, look, doesn't do you come to church any good if you're not going to get the disciple if you're not going to come to church. The two work together. Now, here's the deal. we disciple You come you come to church Sunday, we disciple on our night Wednesday you decide not to come this Sunday, then we don't disciple this Wednesday. That's what you do. You hold them accountable. Because if you just want this person to you keep going with them, I want them to do what's right, I want you're going to waste your time with somebody who doesn't care enough about it to make the effort to get there. And so you're going to wind up short-serting your own system and you're going to get taken advantage of. And at the end of the day, they're going to walk out the door and you're going to sit there. You know what? I meet you halfway. You want to do this? Fine, I'll do this. You come the other distance. You want to do that? I've dealt with people in marital counseling who came in with marital problems. I said, hey, look, I'm willing to help you. I can help you. I'll do whatever I can do. But the bottom line is, I don't solve problems in one session. I'm talking about changing all of your life. So if you want help, I'll help you. I'm not saying you got to join our church. I'm not saying you got to become a member. But I am saying that I want you to come to get what's said so we can tie it all together and help you put the relationship into your life. I meet them halfway with the thing. That's what you've got to do. People, you know it's a thing where you've got to get a commitment out of people. you've got to get a commitment from them, and you've got to hold them accountable with that commitment. You know at the end of the day, you've got to realize it's, it's their choice. and you've got to be sometimes I've said to them, you know what? You can either stay here or you can move on. I'm moving on. If you choose to stay here, that's okay. now. Let me simplify it for you. There has to be in ministry a line you and I cannot cross. And sometimes it will cost you a friendship. It will. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, there is a friend that is sticking closer to another brother. Link up with him. I don't know what to tell you. Now, here's the bottom line. If you decide to commit suicide, now, I don't think you should. (laughs) But if you decide to commit suicide... And you go up to a 30-story building downtown, open the window, and get out on a ledge about this big and inch your way over, and you announce to the world, my life is over, I messed it up so bad, I'm going to jump. And they call me, and they say, I hear that this guy or gal, whoever is in your church. Yes, they are. Well, Reverend, they're up on a ledge, and they're threatening to jump. Could you come down? We can't talk to them. Would you try to come down and talk them down? I say, Absolutely. And so I walk up there, get out of the car, look up there, sure are, 30, 30 stories up. There you are, man, just as goofy looking as you ever were. And they're up there, you know. So they take me up the elevator, you know, and so I get there. I open the window and I look out and I say, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> You know, this is not very good right now. You know, a lot of people are worried about you. Your mom's down there. Your wife's down there. Your husband's down there. You know, whoever they are. You know, your whole family's down there. And, boy, this thing, this is not good. You know, I don't know what your issues are. I don't know what your problems are. But I promise you, whatever they are, we can work them out. Whatever you got, whatever the issues are. You know, you got 28 fire trucks down there. All these firemen are down there sloughing, salivating. They got these big old nets hoping you'll fall and jump so they can try to catch you. And you know what's going to happen. You're going to go 30 stories, hit that thing, bounce up 20 more stories, and then you're going to come down and miss the net the second time. So I said, why don't you just come in and we can talk about it. Now, I will do everything I can do. But let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not coming out on that ledge to try to grab you. Now, do you know why I'm not coming out let the ledge going to drive you? Because I am not going to die with you. You're not taking me with you when you go. And that has to be the attitude in ministry. You don't want to do what's right. I'll help you. I'll do whatever I can do. But if you want to commit spiritual suicide by what you're doing, you know what? I'll do whatever I can do. But you're not taking me down with you. There's a line I won't cross. Have to have it may cost you some friends. I don't know what to tell you. Better start looking at who your friends are. I mean, I love people. I'm a people person. I help them to a fault. My whole life has been spent dealing with the tragedies of life and their consequences of sin in people's lives, and I love it. It's my passion. I do it. That's what I do. But I had to learn what Paul had to learn and what you've got to learn in ministry, and it's simply this. Not everybody is going to make it. It's not because I don't want you to, not because I won't give you the best shot. There's some people that are just not, they're going to be fine with you right up till they get their nose bent at a joint or they get into a circumstance that they shouldn't be in there and then you're going to get mad when you try to teach them and show them and help them get what's right. It's the wise man versus the foolish man. And that's the great, it goes back to the great principle of chapter one, verse 12, the first week where he said, before you and I rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godless sincerity, not with fleshy wisdom, but by the grace of God, we had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you. word. He says, you know what? I have a good conscience. You don't make it. You go out to the world. It won't because I didn't do everything in my power, but there's a line that I can't cross because when you jump off the ledge, you ain't taking me with you. You make your choices, I'll make mine. That's what he's talking about. Because the very moment you want somebody to do right more than they do, you will be taken advantage of and you'll lose your biblical perspective. It's just that simple. You will want to help them so bad and be involved emotionally, get involved emotionally, you will violate the biblical principles that, that, uh, and try to cut them some slack. And I know the thing. Well, they'll leave. Well, you know what? Let them leave. Let me tell you something. The prodigal son syndrome is one of the greatest lessons and God's tools and God's tool belt. Let me tell you something. If you can't learn in church, then you'll learn at Pig Pen University. That's a great school. Sometimes it's the best school. And I can say that because I graduated with honors from that school. <laughs> but sometimes that's what it takes. Paul was sorry but only to a point, in part. His motive was right, do right, and I want you to, but only to the point that you're willing to do what's right yourself. And I leave you with this great principle today, and you want to put this down. And next week I'm gonna I'm gonna show you where we're gonna take this church to to the next couple of levels by the end of this year. I want to leave you with Proverbs chapter four, verse seven. Turn to that and look at this great passage. It's a great passage. We've seen today the motive behind ministry, one of the greatest single things. The motive behind what you do with people has to be love because when you rebuke somebody or correct somebody, just like with your children, as long as you know your motive is right and your motive is biblical and you love them and want them to do what's right, but you also know there is a line in the sand that you can't cross because when they take that fatal leap, you're not going with them. He says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings. And receive my saying, "And the years of thy life shall be many." Now the key to getting Bible understanding is we talk about understanding all the time. talked about a couple of Thursday nights ago, but the key to getting understanding is getting God's wisdom. And we know that God's wisdom comes from getting knowledge. Here's how it works. It's a simple format. You come to church. When you come to church, you get knowledge. That's facts. You start getting involved, you start getting a little deeper, you start learning some things, you start coming on over to see me, you start getting discipled, you start getting this, and then what God does is he takes those facts, and pretty soon you're starting to get God's wisdom in things. Not the fleshy wisdom of the world, but God's wisdom. But God's wisdom, and when you start using what God has shown you, when you start putting it on a little three-by-five card like we do, when you start using the principles like we've been talking about, in time, when you start to get enough God's wisdom, then that wisdom turns into understanding. And he says that wisdom is the principal thing because the key to understanding is getting God's wisdom. And he says, with all thy getting, get understanding. Now look at verse 8. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. There's your seven stages of spiritual growth. You see, when your passion becomes the principles of the Word of God, that's when you grow. When your passion becomes somebody else, something else, that's when you stop growing. It's real simple. He simply says, and it's the greatest advice that I could give any young man or young lady, mom or dad, whatever the case, in verse 8, exalt her wisdom. Exalt her and it's a her because Proverbs 31 is the virtuous woman, which is the type of the church, is what you're supposed to be. Exalt her and she will promote thee. You want to get promoted? You want to get up the spiritual stages of growth? You want to keep going? Then exalt wisdom in your life and she will promote thee. There's a process of getting to that point. You put God's wisdom number one in your life and God puts you number one in his life. It's just that simple. Look at verse 8 again. She shall bring thee honor... When well, now dost embrace her. You see, once you get the wisdom and understanding, you have a good reputation with people. People will seek you out for guidance and help because they trust you and they know you have and use the Word of God in your own life first. You see, it, it, I, I, I think of people that, you know, have been saved for 10, 20, not necessarily people in our church, but people that have been saved 10, 20, 30 years. You'd think it would bother them that nobody would ever come and ask their advice. Oh, they're really good at giving you their advice, but nobody ever comes to ask them for any advice. Amen. Amen. She shall bring the honor when thou dost embrace her. Notice the word embrace. There's the intimacy between you and God. Song of Solomon, verse nine. She shall give to thine head an ornament, ornament of grace. Now that ornament of grace is throughout the New Testament. We'll always be talking about the Holy Spirit of God and the things God puts into your life. And it's showing you that uh, an ornament of grace around your head. You know what that is? That is you start to think the way God thinks and look at things the way God looks at them. Then he says a crown of glory in verse 9 shall she deliver to thee. There's your judgment seat of Christ. The process by which someday you're going to stand before him and receive the crown. Five of them listed in the Bible, but they all come because of the wisdom of God. And the best advice in the world for you today, and I don't even know what your, all your circumstances are or situation, Don't need to know. Wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, the best advice in all the world for you today is verse 10. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings. And the years of thy life shall be many. You want to have a happy life? Stay with the book. Somebody said to me one time, well, you know what? You're going to look like a real fool when you die and you realize that all that Bible wasn't true and there was nothing true about God and all that stuff you put into your life and all that stuff you put into your world and all the things you made your family do. Boy, when you finally die and you realize what a farce this whole thing called Christianity was and you realize how what an idiot you were, what a fool you were, what are you going to say then? I said, I don't need to wait then to say it. I'll say it now, even if that's all true. My life has been so much better and the happiest I could ever want it to be, more so than yours. And even if it's not true, it's given me a better life than I could ever hope for. But I tell you, folks, it is true. And that verse means what it says and says what it means. All right, we'll hold up there. Next week,